Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. I want to thank Dr. Lawless for allowing me the opportunity to preach the word to you today, introducing me. I don't take it lightly that I get to stand and open the word of God with us today. I want to introduce you to a couple of folks that you very well may meet in churches when you are in them, perhaps already there and have met them, but certainly as you stand to proclaim the gospel. People that I've met over the years at Poplar Spring as a pastor, I've certainly changed the names to cover up identities, but let me just introduce you to some of them to set up our text this morning. First is Joe. Joe's a businessman who runs a very successful business. He believes that God is blessing his business because Joe comes to church regularly and puts money in the offering plate. The times that Joe's been by my office are the times when his business is struggling. He thinks he's doing everything God requires of him. In other words, attending church, loving his wife, giving. But God is not, quote, keeping his end of the bargain. Joe could articulate the gospel, but it really has no impact on his daily life. His real hope is in a business that is successful. I introduce you to Ken. We don't see Ken that often in our church, maybe once a month or so. Ken's view of life revolves around his ability to be morally, to be a morally upright individual. Ken is a good old boy who believes in God and when confronted with the biblical gospel replies, quote, me and God have an understanding. At Ken's funeral, everybody said he was such a good man, faithful to his wife, a hard worker, loved his family, served his community. If he, if he were asked about the gospel, Ken would have been able to tell you that Jesus died for our sins. He couldn't actually name a particular sin that he had either needed to be forgiven of nor had been forgiven of, though. Functionally, Ken had no real belief that he needed saving. Kate, on the other hand, was an older lady who visited our church for quite some time. She was always eager to have theological conversations, and this is where the problem really started. Kate didn't believe that God would actually send anyone to hell. So while the whole God taking on flesh thing was neat and gave us reasons for Christmas and Easter, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were not essential for salvation. Kate would always talk of God as a loving God who would never send anyone to hell. She knew what the Bible taught. She just chose to focus on the, quote, comforting idea of God's unconditional love. I could tell you more and more and introduce you to people that will be in your churches Perhaps like Jane, whom I visited in her own home, she had not been to church in years, but was confident that she was going to heaven because she had been baptized as a child at a vacation Bible school when all of us went forward and got baptized. 
Jim, who is not sure that he wants anything to do with a God who either cannot or worse for him, will not heal his physical body. His hope is in this life here. I could go on and on and on. Whether you're in rural North Carolina where I pastor or urban New York or Hong Kong or the bush in Africa, you will encounter people who do not either know the gospel or they do not get it right or refuse to believe parts of it. Now let me be clear. There are folks that I have contacted and been in contact with in Bun that are just outright atheists. Can I just say to you, they're easier to talk to about the gospel than those who believe something about the gospel, but either do not understand it or believe the entire gospel. It has been said the most dangerous lie is not that which is most blatantly false, but that which is closest to the truth. Brothers and sisters, it is imperative that we get the gospel right. People's lives depend on it. Your life depends on it. Your eternity depends on it. Our faithfulness to our Savior depends on it. In his letter to Titus, Paul is giving instructions on how to put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town in Crete, as you'll see back in chapter 1, verse 5. So after addressing the issue of leadership in the church, he moves to the stability and order of the church in chapter 2. And I want us to focus today on verses 11 through 14 of Titus chapter 2 as we see how Paul is presenting an order and a stability and a godliness to the church and how he bases that in the gospel. Would you hear the entire chapter with me this morning? Titus chapter 2, and then we'll focus on verses 11 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Heavenly Father, would you meet with us in these moments? Thank you for your word. Would you open it up to our hearts and our minds and open our hearts and minds to your word that we might be transformed thereby? We give ourselves wholly to you. Speak, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, through your word, we pray. Amen. 
want you to notice in this chapter that Paul is giving instructions on our present life. He says that down in verse 12 in the text that we're focused on. And I want you to note, though, the change in verses 11 through 14. Paul has given us instructions on godliness and he changes here to give a full picture of the gospel so that Titus, the Cretans, and you and I will understand and present our lives in the context of the whole gospel to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, older men can't be self-controlled and sound in the faith. Older women can't teach what is good. Younger women can't be pure. Titus can't be a model of good works. And slaves can't be submissive to their masters. Indeed, as verse 10 would show us, none of us can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything without getting the gospel right. So Paul turns to a reflection on salvation here, and he teaches us that salvation is what God has done for us in the past, what God is doing in us in the present, and what God will do for us and with us in the future. All three elements of the gospel, friends, are necessary for a true understanding of the faith. Leave one out or get one wrong, and the others are warped and skewed. We must believe and proclaim the whole truth about salvation. So today, what we're going to do in our little bit of time together is rehearse the gospel together, to revel in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you and I will be confident in what, is, in what God has done for us in the past, co-laborers in what God is doing in the present and clear about what God will do in the future. So let's dig in. Verse 11. I believe Paul is giving them an instruction here to be confident in what God has done for us in the past. The phrase in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Notice here, there's an appearance of grace. It is the first epiphany of Jesus. It is Christmas and Easter wrapped up in one. It is a child born, a son given. Jesus, the God-man, has come and it is the grace of God that has motivated and been seen in his appearance. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God's law on our behalf. Friends, that is grace. And not only that, he exchanges his righteousness for our wickedness. He brings salvation. This is our justification. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He made him who knew no sin, sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You ask, why would this be? Don't miss this. The question for us as we come to what Paul is saying, be holy, be godly in the church, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Is it necessary that Christ would die? Can you tell Joe or Jim or Kate why Jesus came to die? Yes, a thousand times yes. We are sinners. We're rebels alienated from our Creator. And friends, you are going into context where people do not believe this. They do not believe that there is a need for a Savior. And if you do not believe there is a need for a Savior, then you will never look for one. Jesus said, I did not come for those who are well. The ones who are well do not need a physician. Friends, you must know that you are sick. You must know that you are the leper. You must know that you are dead apart from him. 
And if you don't believe you need a savior, then friend, you will miss heaven. No matter how good you are, how morally upstanding you are, no matter how much you want heaven, you will not see the glory of God. And that counts for those that are in this room, and it counts for those that you and I would minister to throughout our lives. Friends, we must get justification right. We must know that there is a need for a Savior. You see, God delivers sinners from the penalty of sin. But if you have no sin or you're not a sinner, then you have no penalty. We live in a culture where there are beliefs about this. I think it's probably wrapped up in a book that was written years ago called I'm Okay, You're Okay. You'll be in ministry where people really believe that they may be human, they may have little flaws, but they're really not sinners. You must be clear on the gospel and confident in what God has done in Christ for us. There is a need for a Savior. You know that. We have all sinned. There is none righteous. There is no one who does good. All have turned aside. John Owen said, and I quote often in my classes, that there are two primary pastoral tasks. One, to convince those who are under the power of sin that they are. Two, to convince those that are not under the power of sin that they're not. Friends, you will have to spend much time and energy in your ministry convincing those who are under the power of sin that they are indeed condemned. All have sinned and the penalty is death, eternal damnation. Jesus bore that very wrath, the penalty of sin in his body for us. Paul describes this down in verse 14 as Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Jesus purchased sinners with the price of his own blood. Notice in verse 11 too, Paul says, and this salvation that Jesus brought, the appearance of Jesus showing us grace is to all people. You must address when the text says something like this, bringing salvation to all people. Of course, you know, this doesn't mean that all are saved. Rather, it means that none are excluded. It is only universal in that none are excluded from the gospel call to repentance and salvation. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus bringing salvation to all people means that salvation is offered without distinction to ethnicity, to nationality, to socioeconomic background, to our status, to our age, to our gender such that for those in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Friends, we proclaim a gospel, the justification of our Lord that excludes no one. And we proclaim it as an invitation, as a call of God to repent and believe. And this, our justification, is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Jesus appeared bringing salvation. Friend, today, if you happen to be in this place and you have not experienced what God did in sending his one and only son to die for you, the Bible calls you to repent and believe in this gospel. This is good news that God would come and forgive your sin, set you free from the bondage of sin. There is no amount of self-reformation of good deeds that can accomplish what Jesus did on our behalf. 
If you find yourself in this place, in that condition, I've prayed for you already today that the Spirit of God would draw you, talk to someone beside you. They would love to share with you about how to repent and believe in this gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must never forsake the work of Christ on our behalf. A couple of weeks ago, Art Azurdia was here, and he made this statement to us, never get far from the gospel. I'm afraid that I've heard much preaching. I've heard much teaching and read too many books that say, yes, I understand your gospel. I've prayed that prayer, and they move on to what really happens in life. Friends, listen, don't get far from the gospel in your ministry. It's what Christ has done on our behalf that changes us. We must never forsake the work of Christ on our behalf in our teaching, in our preaching, in our conversations, in our testimony, and in our counsel. The only confidence we have is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his power over death seen in his resurrection. And so Paul begins showing us the appearance of Jesus and grace bringing salvation to all people. Next, Paul turns to our lives in this present age. We cannot understand godliness and, li and our life of good works that we are called to apart from Christ's finished work on the cross. This is God's grace. But we, once we experience the work of grace in our deliverance from the penalty of sin, listen, grace is not finished. And so in verse 12, Paul says the grace of God has appeared, not only bringing salvation, but training us. We are co-laborers in what God is doing in our present. Sandwiched between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, we find ourselves in this present age. If verse 11 is about our justification, verse 13 is about our glorification, verse 12 then is about our progressive sanctification, the process through which God is making us what he has declared us to be. Note this, Jesus' first coming is described in this text as an epiphany, of an appearance of grace. His second coming is described as an epiphany or an appearance of glory. In between, we are transformed by grace, prepared for glory. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So what God is doing right now is training you. One of the greatest works that I've read and most formative works that I've read on this topic is Jerry Bridges in The Discipline of Grace. I'll commend that to you. God's grace, Bridges says, is at work in you. Away with any conversation or even debate on what we call the Lordship salvation. If God has redeemed you, his grace that redeems you changes you. He is making us like Christ. And so Paul says in verse 12, grace is training us. Training. We get our, word, our English word pedagogue from this Greek term a schoolmaster, a tutor, a teacher. The ESV's picture of training here is perhaps a picture that captures as best as we can capture what Paul is teaching us here. In 2010, I had one of my best friends that I pastored a church with for many years and I, we decided to do a marathon. Now, let me be clear. You can look at me and say, this guy's not a runner. I'd been jogging for a while for my health with a friend in the early mornings. The farthest I'd ever jogged, I don't even say run most of the time, you understand. The farthest I'd ever jogged was about two miles. 
And we had this crazy idea, and I'm not sure exactly what we were thinking when we did it. And so as I started training for this marathon, the thought kept going through my mind, how in the world am I going to do 13 times the farthest I've ever jogged in my life, which is two miles? 26.2 miles. If you've ever done a marathon, you don't miss the point two. They're sometimes the hardest of the entire run. We bought a training manual, and my friend, who is a very athletic guy, became my trainer. To make a long story short here, I believe if any one of you would give me three months, I could have you ready to do a half marathon. If you would give me six months of training, I could have you ready to do a marathon. I don't care if you've ever run before, because the right training gets you there. How? How could I go from running basically nothing to 26.2 miles in six months? I had a relentless trainer through that time. My trainer told me what I should do to prepare. Here's what you're to eat. Here's the exercises you're to do. Here are the distances you run today and tomorrow and the next day and Saturday. Here are your short runs. Here are your sprints. Here are your long runs. He told me what not to do. Don't eat this kind of food. Don't wear these kinds of shoes. Don't run in these kinds of intervals. You see, friends, grace is our trainer, just like Steve was my trainer for the marathon. What is God doing in your life through grace? He's training you for godliness. And so Paul says in verse 12, he's training us to renounce some things, to say no to some things, ungodliness. That's anything that would raise itself against godliness in your life. And he's training you to say no to worldly passions. Those are the passions that are matching the world, the age in which we live. This world has passions that it would put before you. Your flesh is drawn to those very passions and grace is training you to say no to them. I remember as we were running the first time that I ran five miles and I was amazed. I had no clue that I could do that. I remember to this day coming back to my house after the first time I ran 10 miles, really thinking, Lord, I cannot believe I just ran 10 miles. I remember when God has done some things in my life to renounce godliness. And I've looked away and said, God, thank you. I never thought I'd overcome that. I remember when I've been faithful in some disciplines when I said, Lord, that's not of my power. Thank you for working in my life. Friends, grace is at work in your life. And you are called to be a co-laborer with Christ in it. Grace is our trainer. It's training you to say yes to some things and to say no to some things. Notice the order, by the way, in Paul's thinking. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is experienced in your deliverance. Then the grace of God in Jesus Christ is evident in your living. You will be changed. As the old preacher used to say, if there is no change, there is no salvation. We don't change so that God will save us. We change because he is saving us from sin and self to faith. And holiness. If you try to accomplish this on your own, friends, listen, you will ultimately fail. Oh, can you accomplish some self-reformation? Sure you can. Sure. But morality can never be an end in itself, nor is it a means to salvation. If you're somewhat successful, you'll end up in pride and self-righteousness, which is sin. You'll say, look what I'm doing. Look how well I'm doing. And you're immediately sinning pride, self-righteousness. God owes me today. I've given. I'm living right. I go to church. God, you owe me. 
What happened to our deal? Morality can never be an end in itself as a result of what God has done. If, on the other hand, you fail and you can't stay, live up to your expectations or what you believe God's expectations are, you will end in despair because you cannot do it. So friends, if you try to live the gospel and jump into verse 12 without verse 11 to accomplish morality in your life without dependence upon Christ's finished work in your life, if it is not grace in your life training you to say no to some things and to say yes to some things, then friend, you will either be in pride or despair. But my friends, it is a work of grace for God to give us godliness, holiness in our present lives. It's a work of grace. Jesus' death assures us of his love and forgiveness. His resurrection reminds us of his great power over sin and death and hell and the grave in our lives. We have confidence in the finished work of Christ on the cross to deliver us from the penalty of sin. And it is his continuing work of grace now in which we co-labor with him, the one who has freed us from the power of sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Jesus not only purchased us, he purifies us. Verse 14, so far, grace has appeared bringing salvation and training us. Now Paul turns to one of the major motivations of our repentance and faith. And friends, I think this is one of the motivations that we often overlook or fail to preach to our people. One of the motivations that we must have for living in holiness, it's not only the, the finished work of Christ on the cross, it is his second coming in glory. He will not come in grace the second time, he will come in glory. The second coming of Jesus will not be as a baby in a manger to be cursed and die on a tree. It will be as a king in glory. Indeed, the king of glory shall appear. And so Paul moves to his third movement here to show us the king of glories coming for us. It will be just as decisive as the event of his birth, life, death, and resurrection, and it will change everything. So not only can you be confident in what Christ has done for you on the cross, you can be confident in his grace there, but you can also co-labor with him in grace. Now we can be clear about what God will do in the future. So let me be clear, Paul not only grounds our present lives in the finished work of the cross, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, he now ties it to his second coming in glory. In other words, our co-laboring with Christ in our own sanctification is not only out of gratitude for the grace of God given to us at the cross, it's just as much in anticipation of the return of the King. The life of a believer is bookended by the two epiphanies of Jesus Christ. I love verse 13. While we wait. Is your life characterized by a life of waiting? In other words, the question here as he begins verse 13, he says, waiting for a blessed hope. The question that it begs for you is, what are you waiting on? What are you hoping for? That is what will determine your behavior. I don't have time to go into texts like Hebrews chapter 11 to show you that what you really hope for is what determines your behavior. But you should know that. And the question before you is this, what is your hope grounded in? Not only the hope of Christ's work on the cross, but the hope that is to come. 
What do you believe will come? If you miss what is coming in heaven and you believe it is something other than what it is, then your current behavior will be affected. If your hope is in money or a successful business, then your behavior will be driven by gain. If your hope is in health, then your love for God will be determined by your health. If you believe your goodness is what gets you to glory, you will be sorely disappointed when glory appears. On the other hand, if you believe your goodness is somehow the key to manipulate God into giving you what you really want, like health or money or relationships or a job, you too will be sorely disappointed in His coming. And most likely, even in this present age. However, if your blessed hope and anticipation is to partake in the glory of our shepherd king, then your life will be driven and determined by his desires, his words, his instructions. Paul sums all this up for us in verse 13. We are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Jesus Christ. My question to you, friend, is what are you waiting for? Paul brings it all together in summary, verse 14 who gave himself, Christ, who gave himself to redeem us, he purchased us, and to purify us for himself, he purifies us for himself, a people, for his own possession. He possesses us. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again so that where I am, there you may be also. Friends, the glory that is to appear is the motivation for our sanctification today. One of my all-time favorite things about having children and being a dad is when daddy gets home. My children anticipate it. They wait on it. They prepare for it. There are accomplishments for me to see. There are adventures for me to hear about. There are adversities for me to assist with. And so when my car comes down our driveway, they run out to my car screaming, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! I can barely get out of my car before they're throwing themselves at me with hugs and kisses, and I eat it up. I love it. If you're looking at my kids on the, on the front row, I must say, because he'll want me to, my 13-year-old son, he's a little different. He used to run out when he was two and three. When he was really small, he would stand at the door and just start jumping when he saw me come in the driveway. But he's outgrown those kinds of antics now. He gives me a fist pump and says, how was your day? I fully expect my children to outgrow that. And I don't take for granted that my daughters just really, really anticipate and wait on dad to get home. It's my favorite part of the day, to be honest with you. My prayer for us today is that as we wait, we will never lose the anticipation of the coming of our King. Friends, your life today is driven by what you hope for and what you're waiting on. Is it the return of the king and glory? God help us to never lose the anticipation of his coming as we live in this present age. So friends, be confident in what God has done for you in the past. If you miss that, 
then being good or holy will never get you anything. It is Christ's work on the cross that saves us. Be confident in Jesus' work in your life and grace today to train you to say no to some things and to say, yes, this is what he's doing in your present life. And to be clear today about God's return, what he will do in the future as he comes as the king. As he comes, the return of the king in glory. Live today, waiting for it. Long for it. Look for it. Anticipate it. In both how we live and how we proclaim the gospel in our churches and to the nations so that we will get the gospel right. And honor and glorify the king. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us and that it challenges us and that it instructs us. God, we thank you for this passage. That as we rehearse the gospel together, we would know that there are those that we are in contact with and perhaps even those in this room that have missed something of the gospel. They've not gotten it right. They've not trusted the finished work of Christ. Lord, help them to come to you. Lord, there are those here that live and they have good day, bad day type mindsets because they don't understand the grace that's working. Lord, help us to live in grace and to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To Say yes and to live in self-control and godliness and righteousness. And God, while we wait, while we wait, give us great anticipation on the return of the King. By the power of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.